Good morning, everybody. Let's get my thing working. I'm Wendy. And we're going to be continuing in um, Matthew. That sounds very echoey. Is that okay? <laughs> and we're going to be continuing with the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and the passage we're going to be looking at this morning is Matthew 6, verses 19 to 34. We're not going to read the entire text now, but um, just a portion of it. Well, um, to give us the feel for what it's about. Um, Jesus has just finished talking about the acts of righteousness, um, not to show, um, talking about not showing others, um, not looking for praise from other people, but um, looking for um, towards devotion towards God, and God is our reward. God is the one that rewards us, not people. And the word reward, so is mentioned quite a lot in the previous passage, um, and it's closely related to um, treasure. Jesus continues speaking to his disciples and all the people in the hillside, saying, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moths and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air and consider the lilies of the field. Into verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. When Colin first asked me to, um, to, do, to speak on this text, I must admit that I felt more than a little faint-hearted because it seems to directly challenge our life here in New Zealand and the way that we live. I admit straight up that these verses make me feel uncomfortable. So as a precursor to tackling them, let us look a little bit at the world that we live in. As you all know, we live in a culture that wants more, more, more. Our economy thrives on consumerism. If we did not continually want more, in fact, our economy would not thrive at all. It would even collapse. We live in a culture where we, what we have and how we look can be all-consuming. We're so vulnerable to the materialism that we see in the culture around us. So how are we to deal with this? One way is to look at all the material things as bad, the opposite to godly, and try to put our focus just on the spiritual side of our lives. So we have stop or denial to the earthly and the flesh, 
and go to the, king, to the heavenly or the spiritual side of our life. The earthly or the flesh side of our lives becomes something to be endured. Our Christian life is all about the spiritual side of our lives and our soul. If Christians are called to live spiritual lives, our dealings with the material world becomes less and less relevant to us. We separate ourselves from our neighbours, our co-workers and our culture at large. But is this actually the answer? Nancy Scott laments that as a Christian subculture, we have abandoned the arts, literature, film, music and science. And we have called this abandonment spiritual. We see being a missionary as more important than being a carpenter. But this division of our lives into two parts, one to be endured and the other to be celebrated, is a Greek thought. It comes from Plato and it's called dualism. This is not the way that the Hebrews saw the world. It's not the way how Jesus and Paul saw the world either. Another way of looking at this is to divide things in terms of reason and faith as two different realms of our lives. We could also call this the secular and the sacred. The world that we live in right now, with its emphasis on science and what can be seen with our own eyes, in many ways has formed our Christian culture. The world elevated reason to a position of kingmaker and faith has been relegated to the sphere of the private life. And that is where the world would like to, it to stay. We can believe what we like as long as it remains with us. So, our Christian lives can become all about what we believe in private, and we end up with two realms in our life, the private and the public. And where there are two realms, there has to be two kings. Middleton and Walsh have this to say, the most devastating effect of dualism is that it necessitates a double allegiance. It forces us to serve two masters. But this is not how Jesus saw the world. So let's go back to the passage. In the first section, verses 19 to 24, it culminates with the words, and you cannot serve God and wealth. Halfway through the passage, it says, where your, tra where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Got that there. When the scriptures talk about the heart, it is not making the distinction between our inner lives and our outer lives. It's not saying that our inner lives are more important. In scripture, in both, and in both Jewish and Greek thought, the heart is not a place of emotions, of love, but also faith and knowledge. So the heart is the mind and feelings combined. It is a representation of everything that we are. It is our very essence. Where your heart is, there will your heart be also. It does not mean that what we value equals what we love, but what we value is who we really are. What we treasure is what we really are, is who we really are. Hence, what we value defines us. 
There is a theme of wholeness, virtue, inside-out consistency that Jesus expresses here. This does not mean that we should not labour for profit. John Wesley makes it clear that we are, Paul points out that we are still to provide for our families and pay taxes, but we are, we are not to be reckless. After all, Jesus was provided for by those who laboured for profit. But we are whole creatures, and as such, it is fundamentally impossible to be divided. Therefore, we are not to worry about food and clothing because God will provide. God is the creator and sustainer. He did not wind up the world like a watch and leave, leave us to it. He is intimately involved. Jesus says here that he cares for the birds and he clothes the flowers. This tells us a lot about God and his love for the world and his involvement in it. For God so loved the world. Therefore, the disciples had no need to worry about the things they needed. Don Carson points out that there are good kinds of worry. Paul worried over the churches in 2 Corinthians 11. He also described the Christian way as wrestling, a fight, a struggle, a race. But some types of worry are wrong. Jesus rebukes Martha in Luke 10 for being worried and distracted over many things. Very probably the food that she was preparing for those that were in her home and the clothes that they were going to wear tomorrow and how to get them clean. This kind of worry, the kind of worry that our passage is talking about is the kind of worry that is concerned for our daily bread. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells the parable of the sower and this mirrors our passage very well. He warns that the seeds sown among thorns were choked out by the cares of the world and the lure of wealth. The two things that we're talking about here. He is saying, don't let the cares of this life and the lure of wealth choke out what life is all about. But what is most important and how are we to com combat these things? Here we have the answer. The, the, passage, the passage says, don't do this or this, but seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, for all these things will be given to you. The New Revised Standard Version says, strive first. This is the focal point of the passage. It's the answer to our struggles, it's the antidote to the worry and wrong to worry and wrong focus. It is the key to interpreting the passage. We must be centered on God's kingdom and God's righteousness. But what does this mean? What it does not mean is that we must prioritize our spiritual life over the, spirit, over the physical life. We're not to sort of smother the earthly side with the heavenly so that only true important part of us is the spiritual side. We're not to see the time we spend in prayer and reading God's word and going to church, etc. as the only things that really matter. But rather, we're to see our lives in a totality. A combination of red and green is yellow. The word first is not talking about chronological time. Spend time with God and then do the other worldly stuff. 
It is saying that all of our life matters. Everything we are and everything we do matters. The best example of this holistic view of life is uh, the life before the fall. God created everything good. Man and woman were created in his image. They worked in the garden together, fulfilling what God had commanded them to do. There was no sacred, secular divide. Jeremy Shepard writes, the Christian must commit themselves to the hard task of deliberately integrating their faith into every realm of their life. We cannot be divided. So this is about how we live our lives in the world, all parts of our lives, but what does that actually mean? In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It makes it clear that God is ultimately in control. But it now seems that we have an active part in bringing the kingdom. Seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness is something that needs to be done. It is active and continuous, continuous a ceaseless quest until Jesus' return. His kingdom and his righteousness have very similar meanings. The place where God's righteousness rules is God's kingdom, the place he is king. This is not the righteousness that we are given through obedience to God that Paul talks about, but the more the common meaning of righteousness, something that we need to do actively. Jesus is not asking us to replicate first century Galilee, wear sandals and become itinerant preachers. Our culture is far removed from the culture in which Jesus spoke. But we are to live out his kingdom vision in our world. What was Jesus' kingdom vision? At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus said, the kingdom has come near, and he proclaimed that good news. He said that the kingdom belongs to the poor, the persecuted, the reviled, and the obedient and the righteous. When he announced his kingdom in Luke 4, it was outward looking. His announcements focused on the poor, the blind, and the captive. He said the kingdom is like a mustard seed, like yeast, like treasure in a field, a pearl of great price, price, a net thrown into the sea, a forgiving king, a king who has a banquet in which whoever can come. Jesus said, you must become like little children to enter the kingdom. The kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world and is inherited by those who give to the hungry, clothe the naked, visit those in prison. He compares the kingdom of heaven to a generous landowner who shows no discrimination and puts his employees' welfare above profit. But ultimately, the sign of the kingdom is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we've looked at kingdom. So what is righteousness? Both these things we could spend months and months studying. But righteousness is conformity to God's will. Our culture has brought into the idea of spontaneity and authenticity. We're free to do what we want and be true to ourselves. But conformity to God's will 
will have the ultimate reward. Righteousness is the result of living out, of the, living out the Sermon on the Mount. It is the activity of faithful discipleship. Righteousness has a strong aspect of justice. Righteousness means a distinctive lifestyle different from the world. It also means peace, worship, holiness, love, mercy, and much more. In the 4th century, the Roman Emperor Julian the Apostate failed to wipe out Christianity because they lived this way. He said, We ought to be ashamed there is not a beggar to be found among the Jews. And those godless Galileans, that's the Christians, feed not only their own people, but ours as well, whereas our people receive no assistance whatsoever from us. A beautiful example closer to home of this, of living this way, is those who care for the feet of elderly people in our community at the foot clinic. So seeking first the kingdom of God is not about applying God's word to our lives. It's about making our lives fit God's word. It's not about applying God's word to our lives, but it's making our lives fit God's word. So the, sorry, sorry, the solution to worry and the lure of riches is not a mental exercise or making spiritual activities a priority, but a redirection of our vision to God's way of doing things. And Jesus makes the pledge that all these things will be given to us, our daily bread, all that we need. But this is not a promise that everything will be rosy from now on. There is an acknowledgement that tomorrow will have its worries of its own. As the psalmist said, sometimes paths of righteousness lead through the valley of the shadow of death. But God is always with us and gives us enough for today. In the end, I can only conclude that this passage indeed should make me feel uncomfortable. And the more I look at it, the more challenged I am. But we also rejoice because our unfettered hope is in Christ, not in wealth. The Sermon on the Mount is a call to the bigger picture of God's kingdom. It is a call to righteousness, the whole person, in wholehearted devotion to God. Jill's going to come out now and we'll sing a final song.